0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi.
1: This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha.
0: And I'm Dr. Daphne yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians.
1: Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphna, how's it going?
0: Uh, it's going really well. Uh, you know, now that the boards are over, just trying to get back on the Straight and narrow, I guess.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, I'm very excited about the guest that we have on today. Um, she, she published, she was the first author on a, on a Neonatal Research Network paper that we both enjoyed and we said, hey, let's bring her on. And um, we, we made some room in the schedule to have Dr. Christy Waterberg on the show. And uh, this is very exciting to have such a timely, you know, like such a timely interview where Absolutely. the paper gets published and we, we get th- to talk to the first author. That's really neat.
0: Yeah, I think this is, um, especially given all of the background work that Dr. Waterberg has done, this is, I think, especially exciting and important.
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, for those of you who um, are not familiar with Dr. Waterberg or her work, she is a professor emerita of Pediatrics in the Division of Neonatology at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center. She served as chief of the division from 2006 to 2011 and director of the University of New Mexico's signature program in child health research from 2011 to 2016. Dr. Waterberg has over 30 years experience conducting studies exploring newborn adrenal function, its relationship to inflammation and BPD, and long-term outcomes after preterm birth. She is the New Mexico principal investigator for the NICHD Neonatal Research Network which has multiple ongoing observational and interventional studies. She also was awarded a grant from the NIH to study adrenal function at age six in a cohort of Neonatal Research research Network children born extremely preterm. She has mentored fellows, faculty, and other learners in research and academic advancement. Dr. Waterberg has served on NIH peer review panels and is a member of the Society for Pediatric Research and the American Pediatric Society. She has been an AEP member throughout her career and has served on the Committee on Fetus and Newborn as a member from 2006 to 2012 and as chair from 2013 to 2017. Dr. Waterberg, thank you so much for being on the show with us today.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Um, I want to start uh f- this interview, uh, really early, you mentioned to us in passing that you were an English major in college. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I want to know exactly how does the path, I mean, to major in English, you must, you must have a very, uh, um, a brain geared towards literature and, 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 (laughs) and, and I'm wondering how does that path lead you to medicine and specifically neonatology?
2: So in high school, I took all the science courses that were available. Mm. And when I got to college, I decided I was I was tired of that. I just wanted (laughs) to do something completely different. And so I did. Um, And yes, I've always been interested in literature and writing and that kind of stuff. So I did that in college. So then with my English degree, I got a job as a as a proposal writer, a grant writer for the regional medical program. And I was working for a couple of doctors, and I ended up thinking, you know, gee whiz, if they can do that, I can do that. So I went, <laughs> That's awesome. I went back and took the the prereqs for medical school, and went to medical school, and then from there.
1: So fascinating.
0: That's really interesting, um, and obviously you're using your writing skills all of the time um, in your research work. But,
2: yeah, yeah,
0: but actually. Um, uh, ben and I, and Ben's very much a buff, but I, we're interested in like the medical humanities. And so uh-huh. I wonder if you use kind of your writing past um, in your daily life uh, or in medicine, and how, how, you, how you use that part of it.
2: Um, actually more in reading than mm-hmm. in, in writing. Um, so I've been kept very busy over the years with kids and, mm-hmm. and medicine and all that. Um, I've always wanted to write the great English novel, you know, great American novel, but it just, it just hasn't happened because so much it's else not has happened. <laughs> okay. Very good. Maybe when I retire, finally, <laughs> I'm sort of semi-retired at the moment, but not completely.
1: And what's interesting is that you, you entered the field of neonatology, I think in the eighties, is that correct?
2: Uh, yeah, I finished my residency in 83, started my fellowship then. Um,
1: yes. what it is like, I, I was, I was, curious to ask you, what was it like to enter the field of neonatology in the eighties as, as a woman? Um, obviously this is still something that we're, we're, uh, working on, I think as a society to, to make sure that there's equality. And my wife was a physician. I see this every day, uh, the highs and the lows, but I'm wondering in the eighties, what was it like for you and how did you navigate that world?
2: I was lucky enough to be in New Mexico And so the university that I ended up going to for medical school was the University of New Mexico. And it's a very different environment. The entering class in 76, 77, whenever that was, um, was half women. And I was also lucky enough to have very strong mentor and, you know, models in both pediatrics and in neonatology. So Luanne Papil Mm -hmm. is here. And uh, was a, an influence on me at that time. And Alice Cushing, who was the chair of the department, was uh, acting chair. She was in and out, uh, very strong women as role models. And so it was an atmosphere that was very conducive to developing a career as a woman in medicine.
1: And when you mean when papel, you mean like the papel from the Papel classification?
2: Yes, Holy yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she was she was actually doing her landmark study by taking kids babies down to the CT scanner mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. I was a medical student I believe and uh she had to fight that getting funding because people said you can't do that you're going to kill babies taking them down there and back mm-hmm. and she ended up being able to do it and she didn't kill any babies. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it is it is probably the most or one of the most um, cited articles still. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, very much. I think I cited that article during my fellowship paper when I was. <laughs> Most thinking. people yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Definitely. Yeah. Sorry.
0: No, I am. Um... You know, we hadn't planned to talk about this so soon, but since you brought it up, um, we'd love kind of to hear your perspective about, you told us a little bit about the mentorship you've received, um, but your thoughts about um, uh, those of us in mentoring roles, um, what's kind of the, the job of the mentor, how do you pick a good mentor, um, you know, things around mentorship.
2: So as as a fellow, I had two different mentors who ended up leaving, and so mm, <laughs> that was that was interesting. Tough. I mean, they, they they still provided support, but they ended up leaving before the projects were mm. done. Mm. So for the next mentor I, I picked, I married him, and that that really worked much better. <laughs> so you now, know where we,
0: he where he is all the time. We,
2: yeah. I know where he is, and he was extremely helpful <laughs> in in connections that he had that I didn't have.
1: But you don't necessarily have to marry your mentor every single time, right?
2: (laughs) No, it's probably not the best idea, but that worked for me. But I think, you know, I think it really taught me what a mentor means to a fellow or a resident, because, you know, you start something with them and then if they disappear before the project is done, it creates a much more difficult process. Mm -hmm. So it's, I've I have felt very strongly that if you start something then you need to continue with that fellow until you get to the end of the road with mm-hmm. it. So it's a combination of expectations and support. Mm-hmm. You have to provide support for the fellow to accomplish what you know they can, but you also have to have expectations of them, <clears throat> excuse me, that um that they have to fulfill. And it's a it's a rocky road because there's a lot going on during fellowship even mm-hmm. for people who don't have kids. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's a bit easier now because of Zoom and and emails and stuff. I mean, I'm I'm assuming it must have been much more difficult uh, when you were a fellow and and maintaining communication must have been almost impossible once your your mentors right
2: right. Well, the one mentor that left stayed in New Mexico but just left neonatology. and but the other one went to um, went to Hopkins and the FDA and stuff mm. like that. So yes, it was a difficult process. We did manage to maintain contact and we published papers together. So. You know, it was certainly a valuable experience, but it was difficult. I can imagine. It's so interesting that you
0: mentioned that you had these um, kind of disruptions in mentorship because I feel like mentoring in medicine is changing. Um, And before, I feel like some people picked a place because they chose a mentor and then they, you know, did, did the work their mentor was was doing and they, you know, they teamed up for potentially a career. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it seems, um, especially the way GME is, sometimes you end up at a program where you haven't picked a mentor or you haven't picked an area of study. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to find somebody where you are. Um, and then it seems like, this team approach uh, to research is is not the same now as it was, um, you know, even a few decades ago in terms of kind of pairing up with your with your mentor.
2: Right, I, I agree with that. I think there again, the University of New Mexico was uh, sort of unique in that process at the time because you didn't go into somebody's lab and pick the project that they had put in front of you. You know, it mm-hmm. still it was and is still a place where you come and. See what's there and then sort of try and find your path within what's available. So, when I did a fellowship, um, I chose neonatology out of pediatrics because that's where all the questions were. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was going to be a general pediatrician in a small town, but I realized I, I just couldn't know enough about everything. <laughs> and so, on rounds in, in the you neonatal know, unit, there, there were questions, there were not answers. And that, mm. to me, that was the most interesting part. Mm-hmm. So, then when I did my fellowship, I was immediately interested in bronchopulmonary dysplasia, immediately. It's just like so sad, those babies. And so I was doing a project. I was interested in nutrition and how that might you know, relate. This is many years ago, obviously. <laughs> Things are less Less sophisticated then. So I was writing down a series of patients who had developed severe BPD. And I was interested in their nutritional intake, but I was also putting down their respiratory settings at the same time. And so I came across the most interesting words in science, which is, that's funny. (laughs) That's odd. What what is that about? And that's where, I mean, it's not the finding, it's the question that's the most interesting. And what I found was that for all these little guys, it wasn't just respiratory distress syndrome that didn't resolve. They had an initial RDS with high FiO2, and then it came down. And then it went back up at the end of the first week, Mm -hmm. and so I looked at that and said, you know, this is something different. This is not just a continuing respiratory problem, Mm -hmm. and so I started looking at what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And in conjunction with my my colleague Susan Scott, who is double boarded in endocrine and neonatology, we looked at the step back from the inflammatory process, and your own endogenous anti-inflammatory mechanism is is mainly cortisol. I mean, there's lots of other things in there, but that's the most widely uh, spread, the most widely effective molecule. So that's why I started looking at cortisol in these babies. And I didn't start looking at steroid therapy in babies. I came at it from a completely different Mm -hmm. angle, which is what is the adrenal function like in the preterm infant? And that's how we made the first sort of discovery in that area, which was that the babies who went on to develop BPD had a much lower cortisol concentration at the end of the first week of life. And I found that I could start predicting babies who were going to get BPD by looking at those kids who got a septic workup Mm -hmm. at the end of the first week because they were getting sicker. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's um, just coming at it from a physiology point of view rather than a therapeutic point of view. It ends ends up being, you know, treating with hydrocortisone, but not in the same way that dexamethasone Mm -hmm. was.
1: And, and so, and so is this, so this is where I guess this is the inception of, of your work on, on hydrocortisone and the potential benefits it might have, uh, right. for, for BPD. Um, was there, I, I am obviously very familiar with your 1999 paper. Um, but I'm wondering, had you done any work before on hydrocortisone in that area to, in relationship specifically to BPD? So, so the
2: 99 paper is the pilot study, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Well, that came out of this first work where we looked and thought and saw that, you know, cortisol concentrations in these babies were lower Mm -hmm. in the ones who went on to get BPD. So the question then became obviously, if we give them a little bit of hydrocortisone at that period, can we make a difference in their outcome? And so we didn't start out to treat them with high doses. We started out to try and replace their own adrenal insufficiency. And that's where we did the initial pilot study and then the, the big study but before that we published on um, the relationship of chorea to respiratory distress syndrome and to BPD and the sort of paradox if you have less respiratory distress syndrome but more BPD why why might that be and it's mm-hmm. because of the increase in inflammation from chorea with the second hit of being intubated mm-hmm. after birth so yeah we did we did that work published in 95
1: and and a lot of the work you've published has become like knowledge mm-hmm. it's it's it, to me it's mm-hmm. quite fascinating so for example um what every neonatologist thinks about when they are thinking of giving steroids with indomethacin uh, and the association with perforation that was the work you did uh in the in the early 2000 the late 1990s that's the paper that's the paper that showed this 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 association that we were not aware of beforehand
2: right yeah. Right. And that was devastating. I have to tell you, I mean, that Mm -hmm. was my first big randomized multi-center trial. And it was stopped about halfway through because of the increase in spontaneous perforations. And so I I, I didn't sleep at night for (laughs) for a very long time looking at that, but ended up being able to say, yes, we showed that you should not give hydrocortisone Mm -hmm. and indomethacin together. And we probably saved a whole bunch more kids Mm-hmm. From getting a spontaneous perforation, and I've 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 dealt with that in that way. Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. So Saad, that's that's what was going to be my question. Is this how you you mitigate the the frustration of this happening to your cohort right. versus oh, if I had not published this finding, many other people out there. Even though that number is probably unknown to you, <laughs> uh, you can assume <laughs> that you've done on the, the net effect is positive rather than negative. Right. Right. Sorry, definitely you were going to say something.
2: so it, no, it was really- I was going
0: to say, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think um, it brings, it sheds so much light on how even if the work that you set out to do doesn't go exactly as you anticipated, there's so much to learn from right. every single study. And that was groundbreaking. And I, I think it's it saved countless lives um, by having that knowledge, um, which we didn't have before.
1: So my question to you then was you you go through this this phase where you had this initial pilot study and the results are promising and they're pointing you in a yes. certain direction and then you do this paper from uh, that's that was published in pediatrics in 2004 looking at uh, this prophylactic use of hydrocortisone and i mean for the people i mean first of all we'll put the link to the to the paper in the show description mm-hmm. if you haven't seen this paper you should read it like as researchers you may like i feel like not many people get to work on on the paper of this magnitude to begin with it's mm-hmm. like it's 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 a big deal and then you see <laughs> this this association with the perforation but on the other hand it was almost serendipitous i mean it didn't really it 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 created a, an obstacle where the trial had to be halted but it it was not the right. question you were trying to answer so right. i am wondering if as a researcher you feel a bit of frustration where it's like well this 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 pda business derailed the the trial but but like i still want to find out what hydrocortisone prophylaxis can do to bpd
2: right and i have to tell you that the results of of that particular trial halted the research in this area for a long time obviously and it 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 did that despite the fact that you could see that in the absence of endomethacin there was no effect of hydrocortisone on spontaneous perforation but we had to wait for um the French study, it was supposed to be a Canadian and a French study. Friends of mine, uh, you know, we talked about developing this and doing it without endomethacin and stuff. And it finally got done in France, but not in Canada.
1: Uh, I wa-
2: we had to wait a, a long time for that. I
1: wanted to then backtrack a little bit because in between 2004 and, and are you when you're talking about the French study, you're talking about the Premiloc trial that came out. Yes, in, in yes 20- Olivier's, yeah, Olivier's. Mm-hmm.
2: Olivier's yeah. study.
1: But in between, we have two little studies from Italy... And Finland, right? Where, yes. where um, there's there, they're almost like the initial study you published in 1999, where the numbers are very small, but um, they are um, showing that that maybe hydrocortisone can help. So, as a researcher, right. when those studies come out, how does that make you feel? Like, are you saying I should really try to push again on this topic, or?
2: Well actually the Finnish study, Uri's study, they stopped because of the reports mm-hmm. of increased perforation in mm-hmm. our study. Um and Bonsante, I don't know I think he had only planned to do a small pilot study at that time. And then and then my study was published and everybody stopped. Mm-hmm. I see. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was it they were all at the same time. And so then we stopped until the Premilog study came out. And then we were able to put together i I still think this is an amazing accomplishment, I have to say. We were able to put together data from Italy, mm-hmm. Finland, France, and the U.S. Mm-hmm. into an individual patient data meta-analysis. And I am so proud of that accomplishment. It took a year to get all the data use agreements in place. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was mm-hmm. that was a huge issue. Right. But I was still able to work with Michelle Schaefer, who had done the statistics for my original study. She had moved to Washington, so I flew up there, and we'd worked together for days putting together all this stuff and making sure we had the right information information. Um, and getting that published and i just i'm very happy about that
1: and uh, yeah i i think it's it's quite an accomplishment and i'm so interesting it's so interesting the path that the study of hydrocortisone mm-hmm. took all of you yeah uh, i mean we it, it started right in the in the u.s then we europe and then the french trial i mean i wanted to ask you about the french trial obviously because this study comes out and it's it's in the lancet and it's earth shattering, right? I mean, they're saying, yeah, survival right. without BPD is, is, uh, much lower if you're giving prophylactic, uh, hydrocortisone, um, and much higher, um, I'm, survival without BPD is higher. higher. I'm sorry. That's what I meant to say. Ooh, yeah. I apologize. I apologize. And, and not only that, the neurodevelopmental outcome that came out of that study were phenomenal. I mean, it was, it was not even that the, that it, it, there was no impairment. It was actually better to- uh,
2: Actually, we showed that in our first study too. It wasn't significant except for a couple of things, but it was significantly better in several respects. Mm-hmm.
1: And then, um, but then I thought to me, when I was reading the premilog trial, I thought, um, I'm wondering what was your thoughts on on how they defined BPD? Because I think it was a tiny bit different from what other studies had done in the past. And it was a very much a physiologic definition of BPD. and um, then my question, I guess my, I guess my question is you, uh, by the time the Premalog trial comes out, are you, are you thinking, all right, this is it, this is the study. I, I, this, this puts this issue to rest, or are you still working on the, on the trial that you recently published with the neonatal research mm-hmm. network? I'm just curious as to how, how this unfolds.
2: So there's just basically two different things. I started working with, uh, well, like, started getting accidentally introduced to the French folks in 2000 when we were there on vacation and they asked me to give a talk at one of their hospitals there. <laughs> and so ever since then, I've been friends with Bernard Taibault and uh, Thierry Lacaz and Olivier. And so Thierry Lacaz is sort of the, the character in here who made this all happen. Talk about mentorship. <laughs> he, um, he was from France, he's in, now in Canada, but he just sort of kept agitating us to get this done to, you know, with Olivier to put it together. He tried to get it together in Canada, but because of, I think because of the previous study, was unable to get funding for that there. But, um, you know, it, it's just over time working together with people, continuing to talk to each other. And then Thierry just says, you know, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. <laughs> and so the that study got done.
1: I see. and. And so, can for the for the for so when this episode airs, I think we will have reviewed the study on the Journal Club, and we would have brought up the results to the to the audience. But for for the people who haven't had the chance to pick up the New England Journal, um, well, so the findings the findings of of the of your latest uh, publication were quite interesting. Uh, do, do you want to go a little bit into what this study showed?
2: Yeah, were, it was disappointing, of course, but not unexpected. Um, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of my career going around and talking about how the dexamethasone is a bad drug and the dose was way too high. And I've tried to you know, talk people out of using it or at least into using a smaller dose. And so Lex Doyle tried to do the right study. When he did the DART study, he had planned to enroll 800 babies in that study. Mm-hmm and because of the increasing recognition of the neurologic adverse effects of dexamethasone in high doses 0.5 per kilo to start his study which used a lower dose 0.15 per kilo to start and a shorter course in time couldn't enroll the patients mm-hmm. so you know he just he could not get people to enroll in a study of dexamethasone even though that was the right study to do and so he was stuck with like 70 kids. And it looked like, yes, you could get the, end, the endotracheal tube out. But it's not clear, even in that study, whether it made a difference to BPD in the end. So, you know, I, I think that starting in the first week with dexamethasone was a bad idea. It was too strong of a drug. It promotes apoptosis in the hippocampus and other spots in the brain. But people in in medicine neonatology all of us it's either yes or no it's it's mm-hmm. uh, you know this or that you you have to develop a sort of a more nuanced view of what to do and so i think that it was important to do this hydrocortisone trial and i think that it's it showed you can use that to extubate babies when when Lex did the DART trial, there was a bigger difference in the excavation between the two arms of his study than between ours, but that was only 70 kids, and we had 800 kids at like 19 different places. Mm-hmm. So I think we need, actually, another dexamethasone trial if we're going to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, what what is the the future of this work without, without giving in a way too many secrets, I suppose. Um, but you know, other, other questions that need to be answered.
2: Well, it's really interesting to me before I even talk about that. It's really interesting to me, the different takes that people have on the mm. same data. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people say, well, you know, it didn't change the outcome of survival without BPD. So let's not use it. Other people say, well, look, you can get them off the ventilator people Mm -hmm. babies hate being on the ventilator Mm -hmm. you know we hate seeing babies on the ventilator maybe people will use it for that reason and i think that's something that the folks are just going to have to to figure out in their own mind Mm -hmm. um so i think the future of this work is personally i think you know the inflammatory process is set in the first week Mm -hmm. we looked way back as i was starting out i looked at the tracheal aspirate of babies who go on to get BPD, and there's a lot more inflammation there than there is in the babies who go on to recover without it. So I think that you get sort of set in the path in the first week or so. I think you can modify it with other therapies after that, but I'm not sure that you can, oh, sort of make it not be there if you start in later. So I'm I'm not sure, honestly.
1: Well, after reading the the New England uh, article, um, my question to you then was, to me, what all this evidence uh, points to is a form of risk assessment. I have a feeling that from all the data that you've published in the past, from the Premiloc trial, from from this trial, this trial didn't have a specific name, correct? It's, I mean, the paper is called Hydrocortisone to Improve Survival Without Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia, but it didn't have like, a, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, is it going to be one of these things where we're going to do a risk strat? Do you think we're going to end up with a risk stratification where chori- I mean, that is, for example, would be an important factor? The degree of inflammation soon after birth will be a big factor. And based on this risk stratification, then we will decide whether to use or not hydrocortisone?
2: I think so. I think people are already trying to do that. We're going to present an abstract at this uh, upcoming meeting talking about You know, is there a differential effect based on the baseline risk? Mm -hmm. Um, That kind of stuff. I'm certain that that will be true. The the problem is that when you get down to 23, 24, even 22 weekers, the risk for developing chronic lung disease is almost unimaginably high. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if you start out being intubated, it's sort of, you'd be surprised if they don't end up with some kind of oxygen requirement at 36 weeks or more. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. And going back to some of the of the of the of the secondary findings that you've mentioned, especially shorter invasive ventilation, earlier extubation, do you think that mm-hmm. there there's going to be a need to study these outcomes as primary outcomes in in future studies, or do you think that there's enough data uh, right now to to use at least hydrocortisone, maybe not as a as a as an agent to reduce? survival uh, as an agent to residual BPD, but maybe to to have these uh, outcomes of less time on the vents and, and earlier extubation?
2: I think I think people will, will put their own imprint on it. I think some people will say, I want to do this to get that baby off the ventilator. I think it's worth it. And we've shown that it doesn't have any adverse neurodevelopmental or growth outcomes at least at two years. We are following these babies to five to six years in a long-term outcome, and we're doing pulmonary um, pulmonary function outcomes in a subset of babies at, at certain centers that have that capability. So we're going to be able to say more about that school age outcome, you know, in a, in a couple of years. Nice. But, but I think everybody's just going to put their own take on it depending on what their actually what their bi- biases and their background is.
1: So then, let me ask you this question. This is this is uh, now. I'm just um, (laughs) calling an audible here. But how how do you feel about? I think the 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 spin that people are putting on the evidence. So I think um, people will read the the New England Journal uh, article and will say, "Oh, that's it. Hydrocortisone. Let's put that to rest, and we're no longer going to use it." Um, Where do you think that as a field we could collectively? do better in how we read into the data. Because we, especially now with Twitter, you get to hear all sorts of opinions where some people will see that it's, the, it's so interesting because it's the same data. And you have some people that right. say, oh, I think that's it. Hydrocortisone is done for. We shouldn't use it. And some people are saying, no, but look at these secondary outcomes. And like you said, everybody is seeing it differently. Is there, mm-hmm. you think, a way that as a, as a, as a as a field, we could be better at looking at data more objectively and make better conclusions?
2: (laughs) Well, I I have to say that I think that neonatology has gotten a lot more sophisticated in its interpretation of data over time. And I think people are are less inclined to jump into some new therapy just because they think it's going to work. We have a long way to go. You know, we don't have as many patients as the adults do. We can't do mm-hmm. studies of 10,000 adults, you know, or 10,000 babies. And we have to deal with what we have. But I think it's very interesting to me that the adult studies will will say that a, a therapy is significantly better if it creates a 3 to 4% difference in outcome. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we do a study of 800 babies, which is what the vitamin A study was, and it's what our study was, We say, well, we're going to look for a 10 percentage point difference, and if we didn't get that, then it's not significant. If you look at the confidence intervals for survival without BPD, it's really tilted towards using hydrocortisone, even though it doesn't end up in the traditional frequentist significance of 0.05. So I, I think... We have to get a little more sophisticated in our reading of these things. A couple of people within the network are very interested in Bayesian yes. analysis. Mm-hmm. We've published some articles <laughs> now with uh, you know, using Bayesian analysis, the uh, most recent being the NEST study looking at laparotomy versus strain for uh, intestinal and, and we reviewed that
1: paper and we loved it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm so proud of Marty for getting that thing done. You know, that's another one that took years, years to do, and it required the co- cooperation of Pediatric surgeons as well as neonatologists, so it, it was an uphill climb that one. <laughs> um,
0: I have a question. You, um, you know, you spoke to how medicine is so nuanced, and uh, you know, we talk a lot on the show about individualizing care and medicine. So how how do we balance that with um, you know this? other concept that standardizing care, say in a unit um, has better outcomes. So how, how can we do both?
2: Oh, I think we can do both. And and Mm -hmm. first of all, I think that standardizing care or creating guidelines so that you have a consistent approach to the babies and so that you don't change from day to day, depending on who's attending. Mm -hmm. I think that is hugely beneficial has been shown to be beneficial for, um, you know acute lung injury and just all kinds of things in different populations. So I think that's different than saying your approach to each individual patient should be tailored to that patient. So if you have a nutritional guideline, you you do this approach with all the babies and it's been shown that that leads to faster enteral feedings and, you know, better growth outcomes. However, you have to look at each individual baby still to say, well, that one, you know, he's not doing so well with that. Mm-hmm. And this one maybe they need this kind of an outcome. So I think that within the guideline of approaching all the babies in a standardized way so you don't have this, you know, oscillation of care depending on who's mm-hmm. giving the care. But at the same time, realizing that babies are different, some do have chorioamnionitis. Babies that are delivered after preterm labor are very different than those who are delivered after uh, preeclampsia, or you know, the ones who are SGA are very different than the others. So I think those those two things need to be melded together. Yeah, I
0: like how you speak to probably there are some uh, subsets of phenotypes of, of babies mm-hmm. that that will take us down one pathway or another
2: right, in the future.
1: Right. Right. Um, Since, is there anything else that we need to talk about when it comes to hydrocortisone, or can we? (laughs) I wanted to. No, I'm asking.
0: Well, no. My uh, one of my questions was so obviously these are big study. Every time you do a study, it's a big study, right? (laughs) And we've we've spoken about how different people read the literature differently. But how do you deal with some of that, you know, some of the, the chatter, uh, you know, whether things go well or not well, or how you anticipated or didn't anticipate, I think when you're on a big, um, public s- stage, so to speak with a, in neonatology is a small community. Um, h- how do you navigate that?
2: Oh gosh. Um, I am just, have tried over time to talk to as many people as possible. I think mm. so. To turn from the hydrocortisone stuff back to the adrenal insufficiency stuff, which is where I started all this, mm-hmm. I still see people giving big doses of hydrocortisone to babies for hypotension in the first few days in postnatal life. Um, and I've talked to try and get rid of that particular thing for years. And I finally published a paper in the Journal of Pediatrics a couple of years back talking about dosing of hydrocortisone Mm -hmm. for the immediate postnatal period. And I have to tell you, people are still doing four Mm -hmm. per kilo per day instead of one per kilo per day in these tiny babies. And then they come in and they ask me, you know, how can I get this kid off of hydrocortisone? We've been on this Mm -hmm. tapering course for weeks. And it turns out that they started with a dose of four times what they might be starting with. And so I, I think it's very hard to get that kind of thing out there because harriet lane says you, know, you gotta give <laughs> mm-hmm. gotta give this much but harriet lane doesn't know these preterm babies right, right. so <laughs> this i think this is really hard and, and i have to say i've experienced this in in speaking about cortisol and adrenal insufficiency to folks over the years mm-hmm. so i don't know if i'm getting anywhere <laughs> I I am. <laughs> <laughs> one study at uh, a time right one study well you know i published this dosing article several years back. I now, think I was in and- fellowship
1: when it came out. I mean, we were using very big doses. <laughs> we
0: made it, we made a difference. Yeah. We made a change yeah. based 100- on that. Oh, yay. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> that's,
2: <laughs> See? that's what I'm after. Yeah. You know, one, one thing at a time.
0: The other thing I wanted uh, to ask about, for example, one of my interests was studying the HPA axis um, in regards to stress and trauma in the NICU. And, um, I got a lot, I got a lot of pushback from people saying it's too complicated, we don't understand it, it's totally dysregulated in preemies, So why even um bother studying it? And obviously I wish I had been under your mentorship. <laughs> <that> time, um, <laughs> because I may have done some of those studies I wanted yeah, to do. Not, but how do not you how people. do you push push through that when you feel like a question really has to be answered? Uh
2: how do you push through? I I just kept pushing through. I mean, there was not many, not many people are interested in that field. Mm -hmm. You know, People would say, if you can't come talk to us, who can come talk to us? And it's really hard to figure out anybody else at that time who was even thinking about working in that area. So it's not easy, no. And endocrinologists, very few endocrinologists understand the area. And like I said, I was really lucky to have a colleague, Susan Scott, Mm who was an endocrinologist and a neonatologist, and we could talk about these issues together. I don't pretend to be an endocrinologist. I don't have any expertise in any area in endocrinology outside this one spot. (laughs) (laughs) But in this one spot, you know, I I do know what I'm talking about. And Mm -hmm. so you'll find endocrinologists coming into the unit and talking about dosing for hydrocortisone, which is, which is way out of line, you know, it's Mm -hmm. just that, Mostly, they come in for adrenal insufficiency. You know the CAH kind of a kid, mm-hmm. and they'll get they'll talk about how you can give so much hydrocortisone and it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, it does matter. You know these mm-hmm. these little brains are not ready yet. So, um, in terms of the outcome and what what we look at, I, I don't know if you had seen the article that we did about kids at school age out of the support study and their adrenal function and it's been shown we we showed some of this and so, and other people Ruth Gruno has done a lot of work in this area that babies who are born preterm have altered HPA axis reactivity later in life um both in infancy and in childhood and some would say in adulthood as well so we found a blunted morning um reactivity which is the opposite of what we thought we would find That's and right. it's very interesting it's always good when you find the opposite of what you expect <laughs> you yeah. have to you have to push further than yeah. you know um, and so it, it was consistent with people who suffer from PTSD, the blunting of the HPA axis in response to stress. And so one of my one of my interests, which I am now beyond the, <laughs> beyond the point of starting a new study for, I keep trying to interest people in this, is not only to decrease the stressful activities or stressful events that that little guys have in the unit, but to increase the positives. I I feel like
0: study. That's what I want.
2: (laughs) There you go. I I think it's really interesting and important. I think if you could, for instance, Mm -hmm. say as an order in the unit that this baby will be read to for half an hour Mm -hmm. every day or that will play this kind of music for every baby. If you could study the effect of that kind Mm -hmm. of thing, um, I think it would be really interesting. So, you know, we, we know that private patient rooms can be a bad thing as well as a good thing from the study they did in, uh, I think it was Washington University, where the it looks like those babies get less verbal interaction yep. and more alarm noise because people will look at the alarm in a different room and say, oh, I don't need to go in there right now. That's not anything. And so they don't get the the interaction between the nurses talking and they don't get so much of the parents talking because there's only one family in there. But if you take that same situation and you say that the parents have to agree to be there a certain length of time, occupational therapy is there, you know, people have to talk to these babies, then they do better. Mm-hmm. So I think you've got to strike a, a good good balance between noxious stuff, mm-hmm. cutting down the noxious stimuli, which is what hope is with private patient rooms, mm-hmm. and increasing the positive stimuli, which you have to be careful to do even in that situation.
1: I mean, you say you're not an endocrinologist, but this is balance right there, positive and negative. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, I I wanted to, um, since we're still on the topic of research, I I wanted to talk to you about the concept of collaborative, right? I mean, you've been very Mm -hmm. successful in accomplishing so many great things within the context of the Neonatal Research Network. And I wanted to ask you, what are the the advice you would give to young investigators in being able to succeed within the context of a collaborative how do you how do you um fulfill your role effectively and not right i mean i hope my question's good
2: right so i i did research pretty much on my own for about 10 years and after fellowship and developing the the whole sort of framework of adrenal function in the preterm infant and then you know, the pilot study that we did. And then I put together my own network to do the first multi-center trial and managed to get that funded. But I put together just, you know, friends, people that I knew from here, there, and everywhere, and uh, put that study together of people who wanted to do that particular study. So that was sort of my springboard to be able to get into the neonatal research network was a history of of doing stuff like Mm -hmm. that. In the network, I will tell you it can be very frustrating because it takes a long time to get things done because you have a lot of people with different ideas and different concepts. But in the end, having all that structure and all those different voices in your head leads to much better studies, Mm -hmm. leads to much better outcomes. When you look at at the data that's collected and it's really substantial. So one of the things the network tries to do is to encourage fellows and young faculty to be involved, to do secondary analysis of a study that they didn't do the main study, but they can do a secondary analysis of it. Um, Or even young faculty can come in and propose their own studies within the network. So I would say that if you want to get collaborative research done, you have to get someplace where that happens. So, you know, you can start out by doing stuff in a lab, you can start out by trying to do individual studies on your own, chart reviews, every fellow does a chart review. That that's, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that everybody does. Yeah. But in order to go on into collaborative work, I think it's really hard as a fellow to put together your own network obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you can be someplace where the people there are collaborating with other folks already, then attach yourself to that collaboration and maybe make part of it your own. I think that that's a really good way to proceed.
1: But that's interesting what you're saying, right? I mean, you're, you're saying that working in a big collaboration sometimes can be frustrating because of everybody voicing their opinions, which sometimes you you <laughs> perceive as a roadblock. But to internalize those that feedback eventually mm-hmm. leads to better research.
2: Right. It's that. really hard to hear. It's hard mm-hmm. to listen to. It's hard to get through. But it, it's critically important to creating the kinds of studies that will stand up over time. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also interested in, in talking a little bit about some of the, you know, you've done so much international collaboration and obviously that's a whole other set of challenges, um, to do international collaboration, but, but to talk about, um, the value of, of doing that, working, um, across countries, across cultures, things like that.
2: Right. Well, that's all been pretty much informal. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I just I made friends in France uh, mm-hmm. a couple of decades ago and and from that, you know, various relationships evolved and a new study comes out and, you know, it gets done and, and then we're able to get the data from there. I honestly have never met Dr. Bonsante, but he's been extremely co- collegial and helpful and involved and stuff. And uh the the Finnish one I I knew Miko Hallman and that's how I got to sort of be involved with with pulling the Finnish study into our, um, patient, individual patient data meta analysis. Yeah. But it is, it's really, it's interesting. Data use agreements are are becoming more difficult all the time (laughs) and more important. So getting the, getting the French system to finally agree to release their data to the American statistical folks, it took, It took Olivier a long time to get that done, but he did, and it was incredibly valuable.
1: I am French, and I can tell you, I I feel the pain. We are, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, we have a a very rigid administration, and uh, we don't like to share, especially not uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, (laughs) um, I wanted to. We're we're running short on time. I don't want to, but I wanted to ask you about your work on the committee on the fetus and newborn. Yes, can you tell us? what this is we see papers coming out from pediatrics once in a while and it is the authority but I'm wondering um I think where I feel this is my personal view that we're much less familiar with the committee for the fetus and newborn than we are for example with the neonatal research network and I was wondering if you could right. if you could tell us a little bit about what the committee uh what the committee is and what its goals are
2: So the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP, has a number of committees and sections and councils, and the idea of the committees are supposed to be a group of experts, and they are selected by the board to be on that committee to participate in developing policy and clinical guidelines for members of the academy. And so you are you are nominated and then if you are lucky enough to get on the committee, it's a lot of work. Mm. It's, it's very interesting. It takes a lot of time, especially as chair of the committee, it takes a lot of time to get that work done, but you feel important. I mean, you feel like you're, you're (laughs) making a difference Mm -hmm. in writing those because you end up seeing those guidelines being Mm -hmm. cited all over the place. And Mm -hmm. so it, it it makes you feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to get it Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you spend a lot of time writing things or deciding it's not yet time to write things or revising things that have already been written, trying to talk other committees into agreeing with you, you know, Um, it's a, it's quite a challenge. It's really worth doing.
1: How do you decide that? That was, that was my, my follow-up question is since, since this is supposed to generate uh, policies and guidelines, how do you say, all right, this field, this area, we know, enough that we can actually make a statement versus oh boy there's not enough evidence there we have to hold off
2: right it, it's surprising how well it sort of sorts itself out every time we do present to the um, to the neonatal section of the AAP twice a year and try and get feedback from members of the section on what they feel like they need help with mm-hmm. um, guidelines that would be useful to them and then but but it's kind of interesting because papers, Big papers come out like the support study in terms of oxygen targets and the support study also in terms of CPAP versus intubation. Major landmark studies will come out like that or the whole body hypothermia for HIE. And then it becomes clear that it's time to give people guidance on that Mm -hmm. and that particular issue. Um, I say one of the most difficult is the guideline on hypoglycemia. Oh boy. Mm. Because there, there is not, Information And, and so yeah. as David says, David Adamkin, that you, you, you're tasked with writing something about which we don't have enough information. Mm-hmm. Evidence is missing. People need guidelines, mm-hmm. <laughs> they need, you know, need help in trying to figure out how to do this. Mm-hmm. And so it, that's been a very difficult one over a long period of time. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, my last uh, jokey question is the initials of the Committee on the Fetus and Newborn is COFN. Is it, is it, call it all <laughs> the, co- are you guys calling it the coffin? <laughs>
2: We call it the coffin, but actually, you know, as I was trying to lighten up the things in the in the committee meetings, as chair, would call it coffin, uh. you know, a coffin or coffin, <laughs> People try and generally call it coffin, but okay. Um, so when I when I left the committee, after being chair, they gave me a. Uh, we were in in uh, Arizona for the meeting at the time, and they gave me a, a little thing with a, a skull on top of it. <laughs> for uh being chair of the (laughs) conference
1: at least at least there's a sense of humor and that's good that's good yes
2: i think that's really important when you're working hard and you're being a volunteer you know this is all volunteer Mm -hmm. uh I i think it's really important first of all to recognize how hard people are working on this in all the committees and secondly to to maintain a sense of humor and enjoyment about what you're doing absolutely
0: um, I have two more questions. My um, my first uh, last question is, um, you know, you have always been doing a lot of things at the same time, pulled in a lot of different directions. And if you have any tips for our listeners on even just like your organization of your day, <laughs> your week, your projects, how, how does that work for you?
2: Actually, I, I've talked to fellows these days about how, there has been a consistent arc to my career in terms of mm. seeing something that's really odd and pursuing that and finding out a basis for it, you know, the, 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 the adrenal insufficiency. And then if you find that, can you do something about that mm-hmm. by giving early hydrocortisone? So then study that. And, you know, yes, there are other things in there at the same time, but it's all sort of been focused on this question about looking for a question finding an answer. The next question down the line is this, finding an answer. And in the meantime, I've been involved in a lot of different things through the network, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, 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 I was going to, no, no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no. Um, well, that,
0: this was my last question, is, and you brought me to it, is that you mentioned early in the interview that you were drawn to neonatology because there were questions to be answered. Mm-hmm. And I wonder now, um, you know, o- over the course of your career, do you think we have more answers or more questions? Both. <laughs> both
2: we've gotten answers to some of the questions, and those answers lead to more questions mm-hmm. and You know if you think you've answered all the questions, you're suffering from a lack of imagination mm-hmm. so, <laughs> I think you know as i've said, I think we need to proceed from the negative parts of what the babies experience to trying to provide more positive experiences for them i have I have to say one thing too: there was an article a number of years back that talked about preterm babies having an inverse circadian rhythm for cortisol they had lower ones in the morning and higher in the evening and so there was something about preterm babies where they were backwards Mm. and i'm thinking you know just take a look at what happens to preterm babies during the day and take a look at what happens to them at night what's happening is you are stressing them out to the max all day long and so their cortisol concentrations are going up through the day then they finally get a break during the nighttime. so their morning concentrations are low we need to figure out how to how to cut that out
1: mm-hmm. okay,
0: yeah you're right. then there are lots of questions if you, yes. if you think about that
1: I mean to, to give Daphna credit she does she does uh, decibel rounds in the NICU just to make sure that noise level All right. yeah, yeah so you are, you're preaching to the choir so here things. yeah, yeah. Um, My last question to you, Dr. Warberg is is I think today fellows are very um, preoccupied with the choice of their research topic, right, so they're like I have to pick something mm-hmm. that's that's going to quote unquote deliver right I mean you want to pick the and <laughs> I am of the i I think I know what you you what your stance may be based on the discussion we've had today, but I am wondering if you're an advocate of just cycling through as many questions as possible and not try to pick uh something that on the forefront may appear to be yielding the best outcome or the the most the 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 most the most buzz i guess
2: i think. I don't think you can do that. I don't think you know what's going to produce the most earth-shattering outcomes. I think what you have to do, in order to get you through the long slog between the idea and the outcome, you have to choose something that is interesting to you, that you have a particular vested interest in. You know, you you take a look at uh, some of the early stuff that we did was the aerosol delivery to the lung. And people are, are talking about how much aerosol is delivered to the lung. And so we looked at urinary excretion of cromaline and said, no, you guys, it's not 10%. It's 0.1%. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to look at something that is interesting to you in order to, like I said, get yourself from the idea to the outcome.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. I love that. That's it. That's that's all I have for mm-hmm. today then. <laughs> okay. And, y- and y-
0: Now we... We're really grateful that you were able to spend this time with us. Obviously, you have a lot going going on given the, the recent um, publication, and it seems like you always have a lot going on.
2: So I'm trying to so cut down. <laughs> <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> oh, well, you know.
1: <laughs> anyway, thank you so much Dr. Waterberg. This was tremendous fun and I think everybody is going to enjoy uh, hearing your perspective on research and and I think you're you you have a very um inspiring career. So so congratulations. Mm-hmm. Congratulations.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. spelled D R N I C U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.